so glad you are with us. Hope you had a good evening. We've got a lot of big news to get to this morning. Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, October 5th. The Biden administration gets ready to build a border wall. That's right. The Biden administration getting ready to build a border wall, waiving 26 federal laws to do so in South Texas. The Homeland Security Secretary says there is a, quote, acute and immediate need. And the fight for House Speaker is heating up as new questions rise about what, if anything, should happen to the eight rebel Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy. Also, Senator Bob Menendez's wife killed a pedestrian in a 2018 car crash. We have new video of the incident referenced in the federal indictment against the couple. And Commander Biden has bit more people than previously known. One person even had to be hospitalized. And Simone Biles leads Team USA into the record books. They won gold with their seventh consecutive team title, the World Championships. Seen in this morning starts right now. Well, good morning, everyone. We are back from Washington. We did not figure out who the next speaker is going to be, which isn't a lack of reporting. It's because no one in the House knows who the next speaker is going to be either. That's right. Paralysis is a pretty fair word yeah. at this point, but the battle to become the next speaker very well underway as the House is still trying to figure out what, if anything, it can actually do with just weeks left to prevent a government shutdown. Top Republicans Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise have officially jumped into the race, and we're keeping a close watch to see if anybody else hops in anytime soon. Whoever the House Republican Party picks, it could have huge implications from Ukraine aid to the looming shutdown. The future speaker will face the same exact dilemmas that doomed Kevin McCarthy and plunged the House into chaos. The candidates have some tough questions to answer. Will they work with Democrats to prevent a shutdown next month or will they dig in for battle? Will they support more aid for Ukraine? It's been a major sticking point for Republican hardliners. Also, will they change that rule that allowed that small handful of Republicans to oust McCarthy? And will they punish the eight Republican rebels who voted to do so? Congresswoman Nancy Mace says she is already facing harsh backlash and retribution. She talked about serious threats to her fundraising for voting out McCarthy. Last night on CNN, she had this message for speaker candidates. The eight of us that voted this way, I mean, if you want to have the gavel, if you want to move forward united, you're going to need our votes. And I think if we look backward and, and punish people based on their principles, that's only going to further divide our conference. We have a lot of work to do. We promised the American people we would deliver results, and we need to do that. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. All right, we have two candidates. They're kind of the two premier candidates within the conference. I didn't get a sense yesterday that anyone was anywhere close to 218, the votes needed to actually become speaker. Where do things stand? Yeah, Phil, the answer that I'm getting from talking to sources and members who are still getting calls from these candidates is that nobody has 218 right now. And that is part of the problem. That is part of the challenge that these two men who've entered the race are going to have to deal with. The reality is the same problems that Kevin McCarthy had are going to befall the next speaker as well. Anger and raw nerves plaguing the House GOP after the historic vote to oust former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I'm not surprised. Uh, tensions and tempers have been running pretty high for the last nine months. Allies of McCarthy are seeking retribution from the eight Republican rebels who voted against him. I think it was done for narcissistic, for selfish reasons, for fundraising reasons. They delivered a not-so-veiled threat to cease all fundraising for Republican Representative Nancy Mace ahead of the vote. 
In return, May says she's fundraising off her decision to sink McCarthy. I'm taking it from all sides right now. And because of the threats that I've been receiving over the last couple of weeks, it finally reached a point last night where I was like, you know what, I'm gonna let people that I need, that know that I need help. Now, some are even threatening to try and have them removed from the Republican conference. I don't see how they can really be part of a conference when they, they stand on the, they come on the inside, listen to what's going on and go outside and lob bombs in the middle. The very people who are uh, blaming the eight who voted against Kevin McCarthy are the same people who have held up this process so that we don't get to the point where we pass a budget, pass appropriations bills, and deal with the, the, the huge spending. McCarthy, too, is seeking revenge against Democrats for not throwing him a lifeline during the vote. Two Republican sources tell CNN he was behind the move to kick former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and former Majority Leader Steny Hoyer out of their unofficial office spaces near the House floor. Rather than, you know, than being petty and silly, you know, and, and throwing Nancy Pelosi out of her office, I mean, how does that contribute to civility up here? Even though Republicans are bitterly divided, the race to elect the next speaker is in full swing. Two leading contenders for the role are emerging, including House Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Representative Jim Jordan. Scalise was shot in 2017 at a baseball practice ahead of a congressional charity game that left him in critical condition. In August, Scalise revealed he was diagnosed with blood cancer. He's Leader Scalise, he's a good friend. We're, I had a great conversation with him, with Jim, with Kevin, other people. We're, we're um, working hard, we're gonna unite. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan was one of the co-founders of the Conservative Freedom Caucus and is a close ally of former President Trump. I think we're a conservative center-right party. I think I'm the guy who can help unite that. And the interim speaker, the guy who is holding the job right now, Patrick McHenry, I'm told he has been meeting with members from all corners of the Republican conference over the last 24 hours, trying to figure out the best way to have the speaker's race, the best way for Republicans to emerge from that race united at a time when all the focus has been on the GOP disarray. Phil, Poppy. All right, Lauren Fox, busy days ahead. Thank you. Also new this morning, a headline you might not have expected. The Biden administration is waiving 26 federal laws in order to build a border wall in South Texas. This is a move that was used frequently by the Trump White House as that administration built 52 miles of new border barriers and repaired about 450 miles of it. But a reminder, here's what then candidate Biden said about a border wall in 2020. There will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration. That was then. This is now. And the Homeland Security Secretary says there is a, quote, acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers near the border to prevent unlawful entries. This is happening in Stark County, where there have been nearly a quarter of a million illegal entries this fiscal year, according to government data. Now, this move comes as we're getting a fresh look at the realities on the border. New video from outside El Paso shows migrants running and cheering as they cross the border in spite of increased security. Of course, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is now on the ground in Mexico. He says he's trying to understand the origins of the crisis as hundreds of migrants are being bused daily to his city. Let's get straight to CNN's Priscilla Alvarez. She's live at the White House for us. Uh, Priscilla, what prompted this move, which seems to be diametrically opposed to where candidate Biden was? 
This really boils down to money that Congress has appropriated for border barriers. And that is what the Homeland Security Secretary says in this notice. They have to use these 2019 funds for that purpose, and they're going to focus it on an area that is highly trafficked. And that is an area of the Rio Grande Valley sector, where, as you mentioned, there have been nearly 300,000 encounters dating back to last October through August. Now, uh, to, they are also going to waive 26 laws to do this. That is something that the Trump administration also did. It's a way that the administration will be able to build these in an expedited manner. And the U.S. Customs and Border Protection had previously announced last month that they were going to do something along these lines and that they would seek public input, that it would be up to 20 um, miles of new border barrier system and that it would include an additional to those border barriers, light poles and lighting, gates, cameras. But of course, this is something that Democrats have repeatedly said is not necessary. In fact, uh, Congressman Henry Cuellar said that, quote, a border wall is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem, going on to say it will not bolster border security in Star County. And when you talk to administration officials, they'll also say they want to focus instead on border security technology versus the barriers themselves. But in this case, they're also in a position where they have to use these funds for what they were initially intended. And of course, Phil and Poppy, as we have covered, there is an uptick of border crossings on the U.S.-Mexico border. This is of concern to officials that I have been speaking with. And this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, and Attorney General Merrick Garland are in Mexico for annual security talks where migration is expected to come up. Yeah, it just shows the focus, the fact that the Democratic administration is waiving things like the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, and using money appropriated during the Trump administration to do this shows sort of the level of, of the crisis. Um, Priscilla, before you go, can you talk about what Biden is saying, the president, while the House is speakerless, there's a, a big push on what does this mean for Ukraine funding? We heard directly from the president yesterday where he conceded that he is worried, but he also made the point that there is uh, support for Ukraine among Republicans and Democrats. Now, of course, as we're seeing this leader race unfold, we're also getting a sense of who would support this type of aid package. For example, Jim Jordan has announced that he's going to run for speaker, but he has also said clearly that he would oppose Ukraine aid. So the president is really trying to make the point that this is still a priority. It is important. It is something that will be talked about with his national security team today and that he will eventually be making a speech on. It is not expected this week, but it just underscores that this is still very important to the White House. We should also know that the president convened a call with allies this week to reassure them that the U.S. still supports Ukraine in all of this. So this is still an unfolding story, and officials are keenly aware that they could run out of funding and that the House Speaker that is chosen is going to play a big role in getting more of it. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you for the reporting on both fronts. Well, there's more trouble for President Biden's dog, Commander, at the White House, who's involved in more biting incidents than previously known. We're going to have brand new CNN reporting ahead. And new revelations about the wife of Senator Bob Menendez, who is facing already federal bribery charges. Prosecutor is now zeroing in on a 2018 incident where she killed a pedestrian with her car. The newly released, released surveillance video ahead. Update now on that mass shooting at Morgan State. The manhunt uh, for the suspect has intensified overnight. Baltimore police releasing new 
surveillance video taken near Tuesday's shooting scene that injured five people, four of them students. This all happened during homecoming week. Police have not said who these four people are or why they are wanted, but they did release a statement, quote, detectives need your help identifying these individuals that were seen in the area. Officials say that four victims do remain in stable condition in the hospital. One has been released. Classes canceled for the rest of the week. All homecoming activities, including the football game, also canceled or postponed. We'll keep you posted. Well, here in New York, Donald Trump is not expected to appear at his New York fraud trial today after spending the first three days in court. He actually flew back to Florida yesterday, but not before he once again attacked the judge and New York Attorney General Letitia James. Take a listen. The judge already knows what he's going to do. He's a Democrat judge. I'm stuck here because I have a corrupt attorney general that communicates with the DOJ in Washington to keep me nice and busy. You borrow money, you pay it back, and you get sued by a political animal. The attorney general of New York, Letitia James, responded to that this way. What they were... Comments that unfortunately fomented violence, comments that uh, I would describe as race baiting, comments unfortunately that appeals to the bottom of our humanity. And I will not sit idly by and allow anyone to subvert the law. And lastly, I will not be bullied. Hmm. Joining us now, CNN legal analyst, criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson, CNN anchor and senior political analyst John Avalon, CNN political commentator and host of PBS's firing line, Margaret Hoover. Uh, just to the to the law of it, this is um, different than the sanction put on Trump because of and the warning from the judge about the attack on his clerk. But is there anything breaking the law here about what Trump is doing? It certainly doesn't help his chances legally, does it? (laughs) So you would think in a case where a judge is the ultimate determinator, right, of not only the factual issues, because remember, there are remaining claims, but also what's going to happen to you? What's a receiver of your business going to look like to dissolve your assets? What is the issue as it relates to the penalties and fines going to be, right? Those are significant. Will you have your business licenses? So you would think in that context that you would really... Uh, behave yourself or not be so inflammatory, but I guess he can't help it. Now, as it relates to certainly the gag order, it's not a technical violation because the gag order related, of course, to the clerk, uh, but it's just not the decorum. The interesting thing to me, uh, Poppy and Phil, is whether this judge uses that in the case itself. What do I mean? The case is about the facts and the circumstances in that courtroom. But if you have a particular person in a case who's a defendant who's not really, you know, obeying judicial rules and orders, Technically, he did. Again, it's not the clerk. But what does this say about how you would comport yourself from a business perspective and how if you're not respecting judicial rules, you would respect the rules relating to financial statements and other things? So whether the judge influence is influenced that way is something I'm looking to see ultimately as he makes his decision. Margaret, I think it was interesting that the attorney general fired back yesterday. She spoke before the trial started. It had been there. And there's the amazing picture of her kind of sitting behind the former president looking at him in the courtroom. Um, but we hadn't heard a lot from her or her team other than what we'd heard in court. That changed yesterday. How much of this is not just a, 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 a civil case, not just what we're seeing in the courtroom, but also now a very outside PR, almost political fight going on? 
I, you know, I think she's been incredibly measured as an attorney general. I mean, she has been the subject of so many of his social media blasts. He, recall, it's almost commonplace now for Donald Trump. I mean, it's been commonplace since, since he emerged on the escalator in 2015 for him to go after the judicial system and call and name uh, leaders in the judicial system, judges in particular presiding over his cases, as racist. Okay, so as long as they're not white men, they're racist. And, you know, it, so I actually think this is less about PR, but I'm glad she finally said something and called out to it. I think what's, what's really potent is how unhinged Donald Trump is about this. It almost seems that he is more unhappy mm-hmm. about the loss, the potential loss of his businesses in New York than he is about 91 federal, federal charges. For sure. Okay. Yeah. John, on that point, though, I was just looking at this, some quotes from her when she was running for attorney general about Trump. And she did campaign on calling him a, quote, illegitimate president. She said unscrupulous president. These were in 2018. But does any of that change the picture here? It's not a good look in the rearview mirror of history. And it's one reason why people running for positions like attorney general should stay out of the red meat of politics on the extreme edge. That said, this is now about where the rubber meets the road with regard to the law. This is about equal justice under law. This is about accountability, something Trump has traditionally resisted. And it's hitting him in the wallet, which is what really gets his attention, potentially. Um, Trump's always, he's not about decorum. He's about, he's about playing to the court of public opinion and trying to play the refs. What's significant here is, is it's not going to work because it's not even a jury trial. Um, it, it's, it's all about the judge. I mean, the, the, the PR aspect is almost unnecessary because we're not trying to persuade anyone here except the judge. So this really sort of is out of the court of opinion now. This is in the courts, and the courts are doing their thing. It's amazing to try and, the person you need to persuade to just attack him repeatedly over and over again with, like, visceral rage. Um, I, I want to move on because the, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the indictment of Senator Bob Menendez mm-hmm. and his wife, Nadine. Um, CNN has obtained this video, I want to show some of it, from the police in New Jersey that appears to show Nadine Menendez hitting and killing a pedestrian in 2018. Uh, We should note some viewers may find this video disturbing. Um, According to the police report, Menendez hit and killed a pedestrian, was not at fault for the crash. Menendez's lawyer told the New York Times the car crash was a tragic accident unrelated to her current charges. This was hinted at inside the indictment. And this was also, I think, the reason why they got a new car, which, uh, which is mentioned in the indictment, which she texts her uh, husband a about gift. a gift car. a gift car. Um, this is extraordinary. Is this? Do you yeah. when you watch this video when you see this played out? What do you see? So what happens is is just separating the two, right? What the defense will say in terms of the indictment, because that's what's relevant now. She has to Miss Melendez, in addition to the other co-defendants, the senator, right? They have to fight this indictment. So how does this past thing play into that? We know as it relates to her conduct there, right? In terms of the hit and run, you can make judgments with respect to did she do the right thing? Should she have been charged? Should she have been analyzed for blood or alcohol or anything else? You can make all those arguments. Defense will say that look, the, she was not charged. The police made a determination that she should be let go. The reality was there's no criminality. Now, how it plays in here is big time. What are they going to do, Phil? What they're going to say in the federal case is they're going to say, you know what, this provides a motivation to why you needed that Mercedes, to why you engaged the conspiracy, to why you were bribing. And in addition, final point, no one likes a person, if you look at that tape, who does not as much as they can to help. And when the jury learns about what she did, her inaction, that kind of inflames them. So this is a kind of prosecutorial tactic the defense will try to keep out. If it gets in, it's going to be problematic. On the charges against her, what about for the senator? 
Well, I mean, I, this is all about how it relates to this pattern of, of alleged bribery. I mean, you know, the, the, the problem here is, is that, you know, who gets gifted a brand new Mercedes after they kill a person, even accidentally? And, and what's the, what, what does that person expect to get for the gift of a brand new Mercedes? Uh, it's shady. It just is. Everyone stick around. We have a lot more to get to ahead. The New York Times is reporting that the special counsel is asking about Rudy Giuliani's drinking habits. We're going to tell you how it plays into the legal battle and how Giuliani is responding. When the hell was I drinking? I was working 24 hours a day. It's a big damn lie. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Any of the candidates stood up today and tried to defend McCarthy in the moment truth. To me, they're all open for primaries, and they all should be primary. No excuse. I don't care if you're in leadership or not. you gotta, you got to make decisions here. That is Steve Bannon, the former advisor to President Trump, who now streams live. Right, It said you missed the word war behind him. It said war room from, um, from his basement for four hours every weekday. He helped build momentum among hard-right Republicans, led to the demise of Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. Now, the New York Times reports that, quote, for weeks, Mr. Bannon has been strategizing with Congressman Matt Gates on a bid to take down Mr. McCarthy, offering himself up as a sounding board as Mr. Gates plotted his moves. Kaboom, Mr. Bannon texted a reporter on Monday night, minutes after Mr. Gates filed his long-dangled motion to oust the Speaker. I want to bring our panel back. And, John, I want to start with you because mm-hmm. I-, I was grinning at the start of this because this is the most Bannon thing in the history of Bannon things. And there was almost no chance that he wasn't somewhere uh-huh. in this process. Um, but even though it was only eight Republicans, he still manages to have a significant voice poll uh, and amount of muscle inside the House Republican conference. 
Yeah, it's because Bannon is to some extent a, a dirty trickster for Donald Trump. He's someone who uh, the worse it gets, the better it gets from his perspective. Someone who wants to see it all burned down. If he can't control it, he wants to undermine it. And that's what Steve Bannon does. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, just like before January 6th went on the same uh, you know, podcast or, or, or you know, streaming, he was saying you know, things are going to be quite extraordinarily different. We still don't know exactly what he meant by that. Seemed to have some foreknowledge. In this case, he seemed to have some foreknowledge that Gates was going to try to take down Trump and had been behind it. Um, what's significant is the, is the threat to primary anybody who defends Speaker McCarthy. Um, if you're not an extremist, you're his enemy. And the way that has sway among some folks inside the Republican Party because of fear of the base and his connection to Donald Trump. Margaret, I keep thinking about this question. I was thinking about it on the way home from Washington yesterday and this morning. What did getting rid of McCarthy solve? So that's his aim, right? Seriously. That's what did it solve for them? Uh, for look, him. For all of them. Here, here's exactly what it solves. First of all, I want to be careful not to give Steve Bannon too much credit for being the mastermind yep. of any of this. I mean, Matt Gates filed that motion. Matt Gates was the reason Kevin McCarthy ended up becoming speaker in the last time. Remember, it took 15 rounds. Okay, this, all of this, Steve Bannon just wants to burn it down. Yeah. Because he wants to have an impact, because he wants to have his mark on something. He doesn't want to build anything. And, and so what does he get? He gets a win. He gets a notch on his belt because they were able to help. He was able to, like, you know, get a New York Times column written about him about his marginal role in mm -hmm. taking out Speaker McCarthy. The truth is, we all knew Speaker McCarthy was only going to make it maybe till August. You know, he got an extra two months. This conference yeah. is actually, you know, deeply divided completely factionalized. There's no leadership. I mean, and, and frankly, I don't have any sense about how they're going to resolve this. And I'm talking to Republicans all the time. I mean, there is no clear path to how we're going to have a speaker in the next 45 days, unless it gets so painful that some Republicans take one for the country and help. <laughs> what a crazy idea. And, and, yeah, because because the truth is, if they party. do that, if they do that, they will lose their seats. But I mean, that's where no. this country is. I, you, I love your idealism. That is <laughs> Thanks, not babe. realistic. But like, but no, look, here's what's realistic. You know, there are 18 Republicans who are, represent districts where Joe Biden won. I'd like to see the moderates actually have the same sort of spine and, 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 and a cojones, frankly, as folks on the far right. I know it's the fear of the primary that seems to motivate everybody in politics beyond anything resembling the national interest. Lose. Shouldn't there be a Stand legal strategy in place or other strategy in place as it relates to removing a speaker, right? <laughs> you remove a speaker but have no plan in place to present an alternative <laughs> no, to that because they No, because this isn't about plans. It's not about strategy. It's about brute force and fear and division. But things have to make sense. Yeah, no, but they so, don't. So, Joey, you met in Washington, is, I, love, I love this, <laughs> but I just want to tell you, welcome to Congress, and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you would know best. That's why you're a lawyer. I, I do can't, <laughs> just stay in your, in your happy place where there are, <laughs> where the where there are rules and rules of law. Um, Speaking of which, I do want to ask you, because the New York Times also is reporting on Rudy Giuliani uh, and that uh, he had been heavy drinking and allegations of that, uh, to which Giuliani responded. I think we have the sound, right? <laughs> Maybe I should sue him for that. Yeah, I will comment that if I have an alcohol problem, I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. 79 years old and I'm an alcoholic. When the hell was I drinking? I was working 24 hours a day. It's a big damn lie. Uh, to be clear, the reason why this matters uh, beyond whatever Rudy Giuliani's personal issues are uh, or are alleged to be 
is the special counsel, according to the Times, has been asking about this. And potentially it plays into the advice that the former president was getting. What is that? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So the reality is this, right? All cases are about factual renditions which occur in the courtroom. But if you're a lawyer and you have an obligation to advise, right, that advice presumably is based upon coherent evaluations of facts, coherent evaluation of uh, any particular evidentiary issues. And so was Giuliani drinking could be fair game in as much as not to be inflammatory or not to be defamatory, mm-hmm. but in terms of what was his analysis? Was his I mean, analysis as a defense cogent? for Trump to say on an advice of counsel? Uh, uh, well, if there is such an advice of counsel defense, yeah. but if you're relying upon advice of counsel, you would presumably think that advice would yeah. be cogent and that would be sharp and that would be in tune with reality. And so and people in, in the Trump White House saying that Rudy had been drinking on election night when he was given the advice to just sort of declare to, to declare victory. And that's, I think, why it's of interest but, uh, to, to Jack Smith. But in the courtroom. All right, we got to go. <laughs> to, be, to be saved. All right. Again, the he rats continued. are suggestions. Yes. We don't actually have. Are they? Energy. No, they're not. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Have Commander Biden in more trouble. New reporting about why the first dog is no longer at the White House. And this video just into CNN showing migrants rushing the border near El Paso as the Biden administration gets ready to move forward on building some of the border wall. We're going to have new reporting ahead. Stay with us. This morning, we're learning that Commander Biden is out of the White House. We're talking about the first couple's two-year-old German Shepherd, Commander, who has been removed from the residence, we've learned, after it appears he was involved in more biting incidents than the 11 that had been reported. Our Betsy Klein joins us from the White House with this reporting. I think it was last week we were talking about he bit a Secret Service agent, and now it's more than was thought. Yeah, so we knew over the summer that Commander Biden had bit about 10 Secret Service employees, and that number grew last week to 11. But in the course of my reporting, talking to White House sources, it became clear that that number was actually much higher. It was in the dozens, and it wasn't just Secret Service. It was residents, staff, and other White House personnel. Now, those bites really ranged in severity. We know that one person was treated at a hospital, but other people were undocumented and untreated for these injuries. Betsy, your story is fascinating. Obviously, everybody focuses on Commander and, and the dog, and everybody just likes to talk about dogs generally. But you also get at a, what you report is a very real tension between the Biden family and the Secret Service. Um, can, walk me through that. Yeah, so this started really back in 2021 when there were incidents with the Biden's first dog, Major, who was biting Secret Service and other residents' staff. And that was reported at the time. But sources tell me that that really led to a breach in trust. It was a very stressful situation for the president and first lady. And, you know, Secret Service says that there is any report of tension there is categorically false. Um, But one source that's familiar with the relationship described it to me as combustible. Mm. And what happens to Commander now? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's a workplace safety issue. Now, mm-hmm. I think we know that the White House is a house, but it's also a workplace for hundreds yeah. of people. And sources I talked to said that it is really, uh, they were concerned about their safety, their colleagues' safety, and something had to be done. And I think there was a recognition by the president and first lady that they needed to take some steps. So as we were asking these questions to the White House about white workplace safety last night, heard from the White House, uh, from communications director to the first lady, Elizabeth Alexander, she said, Commander is not presently on the White House campus while the next steps are evaluated. 
evaluated. Now, I think it's important to remember that this is the president's dog. He travels with them on the weekends when they're in Delaware or at mm -hmm. Camp David. He's a part of the family. So what happens next is going to be really important. Yeah. So, so we don't know, right, the answer to that, that key question. Really interesting reporting. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you. Funding for the war on Ukraine is front and center in this leadership battle in Washington. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, this. CNN is on the ground seeing firsthand why that funding is so critical. Are you willing to move forward with an aid package for Ukraine if you're a speaker? I'm, I'm, I'm against that. Uh, what I understand is at some point we're going to have to deal with this appropriation process in the right way. And we're going to try to do that in the next, what would it be down to, 41 days. Um, the most pressing issue on Americans' minds is not Ukraine. What would it is the border situation and it is crime on the street. That was Congressman Jim Jordan talking to our colleague Manu Raja. Of course, he's now a top candidate to be the next House Speaker. He has also been part of a minority group of Republicans that have really driven opposition to more Ukraine aid over the course of the last several months. Now, just moments ago, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky weighed in on the chaos in Washington, conceding that the U.S. is going through a, quote, difficult election period. This, as CNN has new exclusive reporting, that the U.S. is transferring weapons it seized from Iran to Ukraine. CNN's Frederick Plaikin is live for us in eastern Ukraine with more. Fred, we talk so much about the politics of this or the, the numbers of this, the on-the-ground mm. version of this. Explain to people what this actually means, what this fight is in reality. Yeah, on the ground here, the Ukrainians certainly extremely concerned about some of the things, Phil, that they're hearing out of Washington. And the reason for that is they say any delays in aid coming uh, from the United States could cost them a lot of lives on the battlefield because they're already suffering critical ammo shortages. We were with some units fighting on the front line, and we saw that firsthand. Here's what we witnessed. The artillery troops need to move fast. Russian drones might be in the air. Line up, calibrate, fire. Three rockets, that's it, even though this grad launcher would be more effective firing large salvos. It's not very precise, the soldier named Alex says. It also depends on the weather and the range. It would be good to have more precise rockets or guided ones. But the Ukrainians are running short on even these unguided Soviet-era rockets, and ammo shortages are a problem across the battlefield here in eastern Ukraine. Soldiers from the 80th Airborne Assault Brigade have a quick snack, then get ready to fire their Western-donated howitzer. The American 105-millimeter shells, a valuable but increasingly scarce commodity. The Ukrainians call this the sniper rifle of their artillery because it's so accurate, but it also illustrates one of the big problems they have. They have plenty of barrels to fire from, but not enough ammunition to fire. Battery Commander Miron telling me the lack of shells means his forces are badly outgunned here. It's hard to give precise numbers, he says, but I think they fire 10 times for every round we fire. Sometimes it's 1 to 100. The Russians are constantly taking aim at this area, though the Ukrainians say they're making gains pushing Vladimir Putin's army back, even using combat helicopters close to the front line. Kiev says it needs more ammo to sustain its offensives both here in the east and in the south. The U.S. budget impasse could mean further delays. On top of that, NATO is warning its members are running dangerously low themselves. We started to give away from half full or lower warehouses in Europe 
and therefore the bottom of the barrel is now visible. For the Ukrainian artillery troops, that means rationing will probably continue, all while trying to support their advancing soldiers on the ground. Fred, th thank you for that. It's such a, so important for people to see that as this fight in Washington over funding is going on. I just wonder if the Ukrainians and leaders there are concerned that if there is not more aid from the United States, is there a domino effect with other countries? I think that that's one of the biggest concerns that the Ukrainians have. And, and, you know, you look at some of the things that have been happening in the past, and, and especially European NATO countries giving weapons uh, to Ukraine. A lot of those countries did that because they knew that the United States was doing that as well. And I think one of the main sort of uh, um, examples of that is main battle tanks. The main battle tanks that have been given, for instance, by Germany and other countries called the Leopard 2, the Germans only allowed that to happen because the Biden administration also said that it was going to give main battle tanks, Abrams main battle tanks, to the Ukrainians. And so all countries then in on that. So certainly the Ukrainians definitely extremely concerned that if that big security umbrella from the United States were to go away, if the United States were to stop giving weapons or we considerably give fewer weapons, that other countries might become more reluctant as well. It's a big concern that we hear from soldiers on the ground. It's also, of course, a big concern for people like Volodymyr Zelensky, who's in Spain right now, but also those immediate concerns as well, Poppy, with the Ukrainians on the ground telling us they need that flow of ammo to increase and to keep going. If it doesn't keep going, they say they might be able to defend the areas uh, that they have right now, but certainly be very difficult for them to advance, Poppy. Fred Plankton, thank you so much for the reporting on the ground. Well, the battle for the next House Speaker, it is on. We're going to speak with one of the eight Republican lawmakers who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy. Plus, the GOAT is back. At stake. Great work. Simone Biles delivers for Team USA. Pure gold, perfection. Simone Biles becoming the most decorated American gymnast ever. We'll discuss her epic return with Olympic gold medal winning gymnast Dominique Dawes. She's here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. You cannot be thinking about what's at stake. Don't take it for granted getting to witness greatness yeah. like Simone Biles. That was 10 years ago to the day. And in the same exact place, Simone Biles won her first gold medal on the world stage. She became the most decorated female gymnast ever. Biles led Team USA to a record seventh consecutive title at the World Championships in Belgium. The 26-year-old Biles continuing her impressive return to international competition two years after she pulled out of several events during the Tokyo Olympics in 2021 for mental health reasons. Biles will look to increase her medal count this weekend. I mean, I've been here for a very long time, so it's crazy that I just keep going year after year, but I'm really proud of the fight the team put together out there, especially having a teammate go down. It's not easy, but you saw the strength and the courage of our team to keep going and pushing it out. So for me, personal success, whatever, but it's all for the team this weekend. 
Joining us now is Dominique Dawes, a member of the 1996 Olympic gold medal winning gymnastics team known as the Magnificent Seven. Uh, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be talking about this because I think my concern when you, you talk about Simone Biles is that people are just used to it, right? We just expect it. The, can you yeah. kind of con put context around what we're seeing right now with her? It's pretty spectacular what this young woman is able to accomplish. She's a 26-year-old married woman. that She's tra training right now for her third Olympic Games, and I was the last female gymnast to do that 23 years ago. And so what she's doing, I am in complete awe of. My kids are huge fans of Simone Biles. And what I love is that she's enjoying this journey. She's smiling along the way. She's an amazing teammate, and uh, she's going to leave a lasting impact. What will you be watching for this weekend? She has five more chances to medal. You know, I will just be watching her be an amazing leader. If you look at them on the floor, this world championship gold medal winning team, it is the most diverse team that America has ever put out on the floor. There's three African-American young women, an Asian woman, and they are together. They are bonding. They are friends. They are laughing. They are really enjoying this. And there's a significant amount of pressure on them. I know being a, an Olympian three different times that you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're representing your country and you recognize that millions and billions of people are watching you. However, they're smiling. They're, they're laughing. They're enjoying every part of it. And that's what I love that Simone has changed that aspect of the sport. Can, can I go back to something you said? You know, a third Olympics, training for a third Olympics. A normal person sees 26 and says, that's a kid. In your, the world you're from, it's the exact opposite of that. Um, and yet she's able to do it with joy. Oh, yeah. Piece that together. How does that work? When I was 19, there was an article that came out that said you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And it, they were questioning if I was capable of qualifying to my second Olympic Games. And I was a teenager. So at 26 years old, what she's doing today is spectacular. However, for whatever reason, the age is a little skewed older. You have Shailise Jones, who's in college or has already signed to go to college. Um, it's amazing what they're capable of doing. And physically they're doing the best gymnastics that I've ever seen out there and they're 19 or in their mid-20s which is exciting to see. And this comeback for her I think makes it all the more extraordinary does it not the return even stronger if that is possible than she was before she stepped back for after she was experiencing the twisties etc. Coming back this way it's remarkable yep. no? I think it's remarkable, and I bet you she feels as if there's something to prove. That 2021 Olympic Games in Tokyo was not what she had set out to do. However, she did experience a mental block. She experienced the twisties. She did what was best for her physically as well as mentally and emotionally. She was a game changer in that right because then more athletes felt comfortable speaking out about mental issues that they were dealing with on and off the court. So she was able to make an impact in that regard. But as an athlete, you kind of are a little remiss in wishing that you were able to make it fully through. And I know she's going to be able to do that in the 2024 Paris Olympic Games. And I keep saying this to my husband. I think this young lady can even think about qualifying to the, her fourth Olympic Games in 2028 in L.A., and how sweet would that be? How sweet would that be? I'm tired thinking about that. Um, <laughs> the amount of training that goes into it. But it's extraordinary, and yeah. it's a joy, and I feel like as much as I was concerned with her mental health uh, and how she was in 2021, I also felt a loss because we didn't get to watch greatness, and we get to, again, uh, something you know better than anybody else. Dominique Dawes, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. 
Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. CNN This Morning continues now. The race is on to replace Kevin McCarthy. Two candidates have already officially jumped in. The most pressing issue is not Ukraine. Behind the scenes, there are raw emotions, feelings, bad will. Standing up for principle can also sometimes be a little painful. New York's Attorney General Letitia James says the Donald Trump show is over as his fraud trial continues. Trump wasted no time to lash out against the judge and the Attorney General. There's no jury here. You don't need the dramatics. I will not be bullied. Biden administration waiving 26 federal laws in Texas to allow border wall construction as the migrant crisis in New York and Chicago ramps up. The failure of federal policies is now impacting the people of Chicago in a very dramatic way. There has to be some limits in place. Mexico, of course, has to be and is our closest partner in this. morning, everyone. So glad you're with us on CNN this morning. There is a lot to get to at the border, which has been a big part of this fight over the speakership and funding for that. And uh, in, in Washington, because we have no speaker still. That's the problem, I heard, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. But you make the great point. There are policy implications here for a chamber that quite literally can't do anything right now. And there's Ukraine funding, there's the border, there's a government shutdown looming. Um, this is real. It's not just yeah. a political fight that's nonsensical oh. to most normal human beings. It's real for every American. This battle to become Speaker of the House is underway, and it could have huge implications for the looming government shutdown, Ukraine aid, as Phil mentioned, and the border and other critical issues. Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise have both jumped into the race and we're waiting to see if anyone else joins. The candidates are facing the same dilemmas that doomed Kevin McCarthy and paralyzed the House. And they have some tough questions to answer. Will they work with Democrats to prevent a shutdown next month or dig in for a fight? Will they get rid of the rule that allowed a small handful of Republicans to oust Speaker McCarthy? Also, will they punish those eight GOP rebels who voted him out? And will they support or cut funding for Ukraine as the war with Russia grinds on? It's been a major sticking point for GOP hardliners. Here's what Jim Jordan told our colleague Manu Raja. Are you willing to move forward with an aid package for Ukraine if you're Speaker? I'm, I'm, I'm against that. The most pressing issue on Americans' mind is not Ukraine. It is the border situation and it is crime on the streets. And everybody knows that. So let's address those. If the Senate wants to send us something on other issues, that's that's their prerogative. But that's what we have. CNN Congressional Correspondent Lauren Fox live on the Hill. Lauren, good to see you again this morning. The, the question is, the only question is 218 and if anyone can get there. Yeah, but you are having this speaker's race looming at a time, Poppy, where you cannot really overestimate how tenuous the Republican conference relationships are right now. I interviewed yesterday Representative Garrett Graves. He is a close ally of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And he told me that when McCarthy made his announcement on Tuesday night he wasn't going to run, they kept the meeting short, in part because he was afraid that there could be an eruption of kind, some kind of physical altercation. That is how raw the nerves are in this moment in the Republican conference. Anger and raw nerves plaguing the House GOP after the historic vote to oust former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I'm not surprised. Uh, tensions and tempers have been running pretty high for the last nine months. Allies of McCarthy are seeking retribution from the eight Republican rebels who voted against him. I think it was done for narcissistic, for selfish reasons, for fundraising reasons. They delivered a not-so-veiled threat 
to cease all fundraising for Republican Representative Nancy Mace ahead of the vote. In return, Mace says she's fundraising off her decision to sink McCarthy. I'm taking it from all sides right now. And because of the threats that I've been receiving over the last couple of weeks, it finally reached a point last night where I was like, you know what, I'm going to let people that I need that know that I need help. Now, some are even threatening to try and have them removed from the Republican conference. I don't see how they can really be part of a conference when they stand on the, they come on the inside, listen to what's going on and go outside and lob bombs in the middle. The very people who are uh, blaming the eight who voted against Kevin McCarthy are the same people who have held up this process so that we don't get to the point where we pass a budget, pass appropriations bills, and deal with the, the, the huge spending. McCarthy, too, is seeking revenge against Democrats for not throwing him a lifeline during the vote. Two Republican sources tell CNN he was behind the move to kick former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and former Majority Leader Steny Hoyer out of their unofficial office spaces near the House floor. Rather than you know than being petty and silly, you know, and and throwing Nancy Pelosi out of her office, I mean, how does that contribute to civility up here? Even though Republicans are bitterly divided, the race to elect the next speaker is in full swing. Two leading contenders for the role are emerging, including House Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Representative Jim Jordan. Scalise was shot in 2017 at a baseball practice ahead of a congressional charity game that left him in critical condition. In August, Scalise revealed he was diagnosed with blood cancer. He's leader Scalise, he's a good friend. We're, I had a great conversation with him, with Jim, with Kevin, other people. We're, we're um, working hard, we're going to unite. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan was one of the co-founders of the Conservative Freedom Caucus and is a close ally of former President Trump. I think we're a conservative center-right party. I think I'm the guy who can help unite that. There's a lot of work left to do within the Republican conference to ensure that by next Tuesday, when they go in for a candidate forum, there is some recognition of who the next speaker could be. Right now, sources telling me no one in this race has 218 votes. If this was expected to be a coronation for the majority leader, it's not clear that's going to happen at this point. Again, just in a week's time, they lost a speaker and they're going to try to seek a new one. Phil, Poppy, not a coronation at all. Lauren Fox, thank you. Phil. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Bob Good of Virginia. He voted to oust McCarthy. Uh, Congressman, I appreciate your time this morning. I want to start with where my colleague Lauren ended up, and that is what's the path to 218? Can either Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise get the majority of, uh, to, to become Speaker? Well, I like what the person just said. It's not going to be a coronation. It's going to be a contest. It's going to be a competition. That's the way that it should be. We will vet these candidates. We'll challenge them. We'll test them. Uh, we're already having conversations directly with these candidates uh, on one-on-one -on -one -on -one meetings, one-on-one -on -one conversations, group meetings, and so forth. And then we'll have a candidate forum, as we should, a real candidate forum, not when there's the presumptive designated person for the, uh, as the, from the party leadership that everybody's supposed to vote for. Everyone else is afraid to challenge that person for fear of consequence or retaliation. We will have a true contest, true competition. That is great for the American people. That's great for the Republican Party. And no matter how long it takes, maybe it takes a few hours, maybe it takes a few days, I'm not sure, but we will emerge united because we will all have a vested interest in whomever we voted for that got 218, ideally 221 votes on the first ballot on the House floor. And we will want that person to be successful because the country needs that person to be successful along with the Republican Party. What's the basis for your belief that 
your party, your conference after the last nine months could ever emerge united from what's happening right now? Well, Kevin McCarthy was obviously divisive for the party, uh, obviously, or he wouldn't have had 15 rounds of voting for the first time in the history of the country, or 160 years at least. But was we that a Speaker McCarthy even, thing, or was that we a... Two, we went to two votes even for the first time in 160 years, and then you had Speaker McCarthy was obviously removed by eight members of his party. Right. So he was divisive, and so uh, now we have to own that in the sense that we have to come together and select a Speaker. Again, it, tensions can, might get high. There will be in, uh, debates, as there should be. We, this ought to not just be a rubber stamp. We've got qualified, talented individuals in the Republican Party who will be trying to build that coalition of support. I look forward to hearing from all of them, meeting with all of them, and seeing them make their case and see who's going to fight for the American people and fight for the things that the American people gave us the majority last November. You, you, you said earlier, and this has been the case for the last 24 to 48 hours, both Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise and their teams have been reaching out, trying to talk to people individually in groups. Have you had those conversations? Can you describe kind of what the pitch is from both? Well, I, I won't talk about private conversations, but yes, we're all hearing from those candidates. And again, I'm looking forward to continue to have those conversations and seeing who might be the best person to lead us. What we need is a leader. We have not had a leader for nine months. We need an actual leader. We need a fighter. And when you have one house of one branch of government, you ought to be able to get something for your side. You ought to be able to fight for some spending cuts. You ought to be able to fight for some policy changes. You ought to be able to fight for some border security. You ought to be able to fight against some of the weaponization of federal governments to go after the, you know, our Justice Department and Ray and, and my, uh, excuse me, Garland and Mayorkas with the border invasion. You ought to be able to stand up for the January 6th prisoners. You ought to release the January 6th tapes, things that were promised, those kind of things. I think we'll get a fighter. I think we'll get a leader. I think you'll get some Someone who represents uh, the conservative center of the conference and represents the base of, of, of Republicans and, and Americans, frankly, who entrust us with the majority. In speaking with a number of the more moderate members of your conference yesterday, there is a clear sense that they have to change the motion to vacate. They have to change the single member motion to vacate. It's something Senate Major Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said as well. Take a listen. To do that job. You have to get rid of the motion to vacate because it puts whoever the speaker is in uh, a hammerlock of dysfunction, so potential dysfunction. Now, Congressman, I know how much House members love to hear from the Senate about what they should or shouldn't do, but the idea itself, would you consider, do you think it's possible to have a rules package that changes the motion to vacate away from where it currently stands? Well, again, emotions are high right now because of what just changed with the speaker. And I understand there's a lot of people invested in the system that were invested in his 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 leadership, if you want, on a personal level. And those feelings are obviously uh, raw right now. However, we negotiated and voted unanimously together uh, to come up with the best rules package uh, late last year before the speaker vote. Uh, and ratified that, I should say, after the speaker vote. And that has been better for Congress. The only reason we are where we are is because we had a speaker who did not keep his word, who did not keep his commitments, who let down the American people, who let down the Republican conference. And it took nine, no, 10 months, frankly, for him to be held accountable for that. It wasn't flippant or cavalier. Uh, right. we didn't, it didn't happen right after the debt ceiling surrender when we get, you know, gave an unlimited increase to the debt ceiling. It didn't happen after he didn't bring a budget, a balanced budget to the floor. Can I just ask you real quick, though, after before we, before we have to go, can I just ask you real quick, are you saying that you would not support any change to the rules package that was agreed to in January? It has to be the same. 
we, we need the same rules package. We need a speaker who commits to keeping the same rules package. Because it frankly went back to regular order. It went back to how the House has operated. There's a reason why we've all been able to submit hundreds, literally hundreds of amendments. We've all had input on the legislation. We don't all get our way. It takes 218 to pass legislation, obviously. Uh, but, but a confident, strong leader like we're going to elect to become speaker will be secure knowing uh, that they serve at the pleasure of their members. And again, all of us will have a vested interest in this person's success because we have supported them and voted for them or they wouldn't be speaker. And, and, and also, again, we need them to be successful because the country can't afford to continue what we just did, which, is, which was to extend the policies and the spending levels of the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer regime from last year. All right, Congressman Bob Good. Busy couple of days ahead. I know it's all going to be behind the scenes. Please, when you decide who you're going to go with, let us know. <laughs> we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Poppy. Phil, thank you. Important conversation. Very illuminating. Also, this just in. This video showing migrants rushing the border. This is near El Paso, Texas. This is the Biden administration gets ready to build a border wall. Plus, CNN goes inside the manufacturing plant for the diabetes medication. Uh, One of the new widely popular weight loss drugs. We're going to discuss the potential risks as demand skyrockets. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. We're now entering the second day of the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history after 75,000 Kaiser Permanente employees walked off the job yesterday. The striking employees who work across California, Colorado, Washington, Virginia, Oregon, and D.C. are represented by a coalition of unions that comprise 40 percent of Kaiser Permanente's total staff. They're calling for increases to wages and staffing levels. Now to an exclusive, CNN is getting an inside look as Eli Lilly ramps up manufacturing Monjaro, the popular diabetes drug that is widely being used for weight loss. The company is grappling with a severe shortage and skyrocketing demand, growing concerns about the drug's safety, as well as medical spas and wellness clinics that are selling unsafe knockoff versions for cheap. CNN's Meg Terrell joins us now. Um, What is Eli Lilly doing here? How are they trying to make this work? Yeah, I mean, people expect these could potentially be some of the largest drugs of all time. That's how many people are using them. Eli Lilly is building two new manufacturing plants to try to meet this demand. We got an exclusive look inside to see just how they're trying to meet it. Take a look. Wegovi helped us lose weight. They're some of the most in-demand medicines in the world. Wegovi, FDA approved for weight loss. The diabetes drugs Ozempic and Manjaro being used off-label also for weight loss. People taking Manjaro lost up to 25 pounds. In the final three months of last year, there were an estimated 9 million prescriptions for drugs like these, a 300% increase since 2020. Without insurance, a one-month supply of one of these drugs can cost more than $1,000. All three are on the FDA's list of drugs in short supply. And by the end of the year, Manjaro's manufacturer, Eli Lilly, expects FDA approval to treat obesity and potentially millions more people seeking it out. I feel a strong responsibility that we have to scale these as fast as we can. We got exclusive access to this Manjaro manufacturing plant in Durham, North Carolina, where the company is ramping up supply. In this room, plant manager Dan Von Dilligan shows us how it takes only milliseconds to fill the drug into syringes. How many can this do in an hour? This line, this is a high-speed filling machine, so on an annual basis, this will fill millions of syringes. They're running this factory 24-7, tracking every step of the operation along the way. Uh, You're able to see 
Again, every batch as it flows through the facility. Is it common for manufacturing sites to run 24-7? It is. For us, the demand is very high and we're doing everything that we can to stand up and, and supply. Eli Lilly is pouring $4 billion into this plant and another one it's building just two hours southwest in an effort to double output by the end of the year. So it's a massive scale of what we're trying to do. I don't think we have never done this as a company, and I think probably nobody else in the industry hmm. has scaled this as fast as we are trying to scale. Can you move any faster than you're already going? We're moving as fast as we can, but we have to follow certain controls to make sure that we, the, the final product meets our safety and quality expectations. Hmm. In recent weeks, Lilly and one of its competitors, Novo Nordisk, have both filed lawsuits against med spas, clinics, and compounding pharmacies for allegedly selling unapproved, unsafe versions of their drugs. Both were also recently sued over claims that their drugs can make the stomach empty food too slowly, resulting in abdominal pain and severe vomiting. In response, they say they closely monitor the drugs for safety. Back on the Mountjaro line, Von Dilligan says the team knows the importance of bringing the shortage to an end. It's truly a privilege to be able to make medicine, uh, medicine that's life-changing for our patients. As the demand for weight loss drugs shows no signs of slowing down. So guys, all of that results in this auto injector. This has something like 14 parts just to put it together. And when you use it, you take the cap off, you hit the button, it is an injected medicine. So it's gotta be perfect every time. Wow, that was, thank you for taking us inside of that. Yeah. That was fascinating. Before you go, we're watching this new shot, new vaccine to protect kids, newborns against RSV. But one of the issues is that parents are having a hard time getting it. Why? Yeah. This is a really important new uh, form of protection against RSV, which is this really scary yes. uh, respiratory infection. Pretty much everybody gets, but for babies, it can be really dangerous. This shot is called Bayfortis, and it was just approved by the FDA and recommended by the CDC universally for all babies under eight months old to protect them in their first RSV season, as well as some more vulnerable kids in their second season. It can reduce the risk of hospitalization by up to 80% from RSV. But the problem is that it's pretty expensive. It costs four $195 a dose. Mm -hmm. And the concern is that some doctor's offices, as the insurance is getting worked out, may be worried about how expensive it is and may not want to buy it and stock it in advance. Same thing for hospitals. And so we're just hearing that as it's starting to roll out this first season, it may be more tricky for parents to get. And a lot of public health advocates are really upset about that because this could be extremely protective. Of course. 80% protection against hospitalization is incredible. Thank you, Mike. Thank very you much. So this news, a FedEx jet made an emergency landing after its landing gear failed. That new video just coming in. And Republicans scrambling to find a new House speaker. And while the finger pointing is in full effect, some members of Congress are looking in the mirror. I think the American people are tired of chaos. They want to see something done and they want to see it done in a way which makes their lives better. So new this morning, the Biden administration is waiving 26 federal laws in order to build a border wall in South Texas. It is a move that was used frequently during the Trump White House as that administration built 52 miles of new border barriers and repaired about 450 miles of it. But a reminder, here's what then candidate Biden said about border walls. This was in 2020. There will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration. That was then, this is now, and the Homeland Security Secretary explaining this by saying there is a, quote, acute and immediate need 
to construct physical barriers near the border to prevent unlawful entries in Star County, where there have been nearly a quarter of a million illegal entries this fiscal year. That's according to government data. This move comes as we're getting a fresh look at the realities on the border. New video from outside El Paso shows migrants running and cheering as they cross the border in spite of increased security. And New York Mayor's, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is now on the ground in Mexico. He says he's trying to understand the origins of the crisis as hundreds of migrants are bused to his city daily. Joining us now is CNN's political director, David Chalian. Um, David, thanks for being here. I, I think trying to thread everything that's going on right now into a single uh, reality is difficult. And yet, I think if you pull back, and you're really great at doing this, the chaos, the confusion, the kind of antipathy for people watching what's happening in Washington as they're dealing with a lot of real issues right now, it's got to be palpable to some degree. Well, there's no doubt it's, it's palpable. I think the other... Uh concern, Phil, is that it's also uh, becoming normalized, the, the chaos and the dysfunction in some way. Clearly, Americans are not pleased with their Congress, with the direction of the country. Um, and you guys were just talking about uh, border security there. You know, that is one of the issues that is the lowest performing issue for President Biden, and he's at pretty historic lows overall, and border security is even uh, beneath that for him. So seeing this move is interesting, and specifically, seeing these Democratic mayors and governors in Illinois and New York mm -hmm. starting to take on the White House, uh, this is an issue, you'll recall, immigration, border security. It's always been one with crossover appeal uh, beyond the Republican base, independence. There's no doubt about that. But it has largely been a driving fire for the Republican base, right? A real life force inside the Republican Party. I think that is changing right now. And I think because of the influx of migrants to some of these bluer areas and cities in the country, the politics of this issue is changing. And uh, Joe Biden heading into a reelection year uh, can't uh, keep uh, the same posture that he has had on this. That's interesting. For sure, the politics of it. Not all Democratic lawmakers, even in the state of Texas, the border state of Texas, are happy about it. Um, Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar saying a border wall is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. But I was saying earlier in the show, David, I think it's really fascinating. It just, I think, speaks to the crisis this is on the southern border, that the Biden administration waived all these things and Democratic priorities like the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Endangered Species Act to go ahead and do this with funding from 2019 during the Trump term. Yeah, it is, um, I guess, a touch ironic that yeah. they are, are uh, using that. Uh, but again, I think I think the politics of this are shifting. And of course, the real world policy consequences as well. And by the way, to tie it back to what Phil was talking about mm -hmm. and, and some of the dysfunction we're seeing in the House, you guys heard Jim Jordan is making this central to his yes. bid to become speaker. So uh, the border security uh, is going to be this first and, and uh, most important uh, litmus test for Republicans in the House as they choose a speaker, I would say, above all else. To pull on that thread, though, and I think you're 100% right, and you know better than anybody the kind of animating feature this has been for the Republican Party. It was kind of what made Trump rise when he came down the, the escalator in 2015. Um, they can't get 218 votes for their own border security proposals in the House Republican uh, majority at this point in time. Um, so they can't move anything. Uh, the idea of some type of comprehensive bill is completely a non-starter. And it just feeds into the... I'm trying to figure out 
where this actually goes. You watch this week and what we've seen on the House floor and what we've seen just writ large uh, on politics, on policy. I don't understand where we are other than this is just going to be a political issue that people want to use in campaign after campaign after campaign. Yeah, I think you've just identified at the end there uh, precisely where we are. Obviously, if there was some larger solution available, uh, I would imagine uh, folks would have found it over the course of the last 10 years since the last bipartisan uh, immigration reform proposal fell apart. And uh, you then saw, uh, obviously, President Obama did some executive action uh, mm -hmm. work in this space. You noted Poppy Donald Trump uh, with his perspective and policy preferences uh, made this a mission, though. His Republican opponents are clearly uh, going after him for not following through on all the promises as it relates uh, to the construction of the border wall. And now mm -hmm. you're seeing uh, the Biden administration take some action, too. I don't think some big, grand congressional proposal, Phil, is probably on the horizon. Yeah, but the fact that both administrations had to do it uh, and the Biden administration is now saying we have to do it, at least in this area, just points to the fact that we need comprehensive reform. Uh, but David Chalian, thank you very much. Sure. Live pictures right now out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Overnight, a plane operated by FedEx skidded off the runway after reporting landing gear issues. Fire officials say emergency crews arrived just before the plane's final approach. The engines released some smoke. No flames were detected. The pilot and two other people on board that 757 jet accounted for. They're doing fine. An investigation is underway. Well, a new climate report says last month was the hottest September ever. If that sounds familiar, it's the fourth consecutive record-breaking month. Why there is some hope or reason for hope, that's next. And the NFL responding to Travis Kelsey's claims that they are, quote, overdoing it with their coverage of him and Taylor Swift. Are you so happy that's we got favorite back to this story? story. <laughs> it just never goes away. We'll show you the statement ahead. Welcome back. You're looking live at the Statue of Liberty, a beautiful, beautiful morning here in New York City. Also a pretty hot day ahead. And if that seems like it's been familiar over the course of the last several days, but also the last several months, um, it's because it has been. In fact, a climate report just out shows that last month was the hottest September ever. That's according to the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service. The report says September felt more like an unusually hot July, with an average global air temperature hotter than 61 degrees Fahrenheit. September is now the fourth consecutive record-breaking month, emphasizing predictions that 2023 will be the hottest year in recorded history. Joining us now with more, CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Um, we talk about this every month. Mm -hmm. Give me the hope. Okay. <laughs> That's every time I see you, I'm like, tell, let's, get, let's figure the whole, out Phil. the way. I'm going to tell you a story, yeah. and we're going to end on an up note. But Love first, it. we need to talk about the fact that we are the frogs in the boiling water. We are adjusting to this. Uh, humans have an amazing capacity to normalize the horrible. And if you see that chart, that bar graph, this is off the charts, record-breaking. This is Copernicus data, but, but NOAA and NASA here in the United States says it's a 93% chance that this year will shatter all the other records uh, there as well. And this, of course, doesn't just make it uncomfortable. It brings floods that killed thousands in Libya and wildfires in Canada and unprecedented uh, seasons in parts of South America and the deluge we had here in New York City last and the Mississippi yeah. River, all of that sort of thing. That said... The more fossil fuels we burn, the hotter it's going to get. But at the same time, the International Energy Agency, which is not a bunch of tree-hugging environmentalists by any stretch, long-time poo-pooing renewables, now says we're on track for 2.4 degrees of warming 
by 2100. Now, that's still much hotter than a lot of the Earth can handle, but it's better than 4.8 degrees, which we were on track for just like 15 years ago. Why? And it's a result of, if you look at these charts, if you look at solar photovoltaic additions and electric car sales, I don't hope we have these charts, and residential heat pump sales and battery storage mm -hmm. solutions, the charts are just like a rocket ride. And so because of the adaptation, because of the prices of renewables, they now think we're going to peak emissions in terms of fossil fuel emissions. Those are all the, the renewable energies there that are booming and far outseeding expectations. If you'd showed these charts to even the most, you know, wild-eyed environmentalist in 2005, they wouldn't have believed it because it's the price of these things have come down so dramatically. And so now the IAEA predicts we're going to hit peak emissions by 2025. That's only a couple years away and then start ramping down. So the big question is, how hard big oil and gas and coal is going to fight that transition? Because we're past the point of no return in terms of electrification. It's just a matter of how fast. Is the implication here that um, actual policies can have an effect? Is those, that what I'm taking away from well, those, those trend charts? lines? Those because trend they track with... Yeah, they go to the Paris Accords. Yes. 2015 is when this happens. Yeah. And I, I should have had it prepared. If you look at the countries where it's sort of like a, an alligator, yawning alligator, where the top jaw is GDP growth, economic growth, and the bottom jaw is decarbonization as carbon goes down, there are dozens of countries where that alligator is starting to yawn. In you know, Finland, it's huge because they have been on renewables for a long time, places like Sweden, but even places like Egypt are decarbonizing and it's not making them poorer. You know, for it's 200 years, richer, for 200 years, you had to burn, you know, a pound of carbon in order to make a dollar of GDP growth. And that's been coming down. Now, it's 50 years later, it was a dollar. Now in China and the developing world and, and Africa and parts of South America, it's 66 cents, you know, is grown for every pound of carbon you burn. So that curve is coming down. And uh, it's, it's been proven that you don't have to shiver in the dark now. These renewable sources of energy are so much cheaper than coal right now. That's what gives these economists hope that we've turned a corner. But at the same time, the transition isn't nearly enough for the scientists who are saying, we're going to lose at this rate, we're going to lose all our coral reefs. Um, swaths of the middle of the planet will be unlivable, you know, at, to, at this level of warming. So it's still room for concern, but there's hope here. I mean, I feel like you kind of ended on a non-hope. Um, <laughs> but sorry. the middle, there was a good through line of the you're middle, right, and the, right. the <laughs> mental image of a yawning alligator is not going to leave me for the rest of the day. Um, it's great reporting. Thanks Thank so you, much. Phil. Appreciate it. Thank See you, guys. Well, Fortune Magazine just released it, the list of most powerful women in business. We're going to discuss who topped the list with Fortune's editor-in-chief. And in today's Impact Your World, conservationists in Tennessee, the state with the most caves, did you know that, working to help bats recover from devastating illness. Watch this. Normally this cave would have dozens of these and so far this is the only one we've seen today. Bats really are in crisis right now by this disease, white nose syndrome. It's a fungus that grows really well in caves. We're seeing declines of 70 to 90% for some of our cave hibernating species. And it's happened in you know less than 10 years or so. And now we're sort of struggling to see how can we combat it. 
So we have supported some university research into tools to combat the fungus and the disease directly. The Nature Conservancy put up 19 receiver stations and we're putting transmitters on bats, trying to generally understand where they're at, where they're moving, what habitat they're using. If we want these bats to survive and be healthy and recover and staying out of caves in the wintertime is unfortunately one of those things that's really necessary. We build bat-friendly cave gates, sort of keep people out, but allow the bats to come and go. Looks good. You can be a champion for bats in a lot of ways. We do these bat house building workshops that people will go home and put up in their backyards. And that just increases the amount of what we consider optimal, reliable habitat on the landscape. And anybody can do that. The number of women leading companies is on the rise. The new Women in the Workplace report out from McKinsey in partnership with LeanIn.org shows women account for 28% of C-suite executives. It's a still low but steadily growing percentage. Many of those women part of Fortune magazine's most powerful women in business list. This year's list just revealed it is the most comprehensive on record, according to the magazine. It's the first time Fortune has had a single worldwide list honoring 100 women. At the top is CVS CEO Karen Lynch. For the third year in a row, followed by Accenture CEO Julie Sweet, GM CEO Mary Barra, the list recognizes the near record number of women leading Fortune 500 and Fortune Global 500 companies. It features 67 women with a CEO title. Now I'm going to take you back to 1998. That is the cover of Fortune with Carly Fiorina. On the cover, at that time, only two women ran Fortune 500 companies. Let's talk about this with Fortune's editor-in-chief, Allison Chantel. It's great to have you. Thanks for coming on CNN this morning. I always wait for this list. Three years in a row for the CEO of CVS, that company showed its importance, particularly during COVID, et cetera. But what I thought was interesting in your reporting is that you raised the question last year of whether healthcare companies like CVS being so big and dominant is actually good for the country. I think that's yet to be determined, quite frankly. I mean, I do think in the U.S., we're one of the only countries that really monetizes the poor and the sick in a sort of unhealthy way. Um, their thought is, hey, if we can get really big and be really vertically integrated, we can bring prices down for the whole healthcare process. We'll see. Um, I hope so. She certainly, uh, Karen Lynch is number one on our list three years in a row, as you said because CVS is giant. It's over 300 billion in revenue. No woman has ever run a company anywhere near that size. And she's not just a most powerful woman, she's just powerful. So we actually had her on the cover of our Fortune 500 issue this year. Number two on the list is Mary Barra, General Motors, certainly in the news right now. I believe she was number one on the list at, at one point not that long ago. We're about three weeks into the United Auto Workers strike. She's trying to navigate through that. Yesterday, her company came out and said that it had cost $200 million for GM uh, since this strike began. This is a GM worker talking about it. Here it is. We're really fighting for the middle class. We want better wages. We want what every American wants, a uh, good fair wage so you can um, go to work, be proud of what you do, feed your families. One of the things I think is interesting, how you determine power, it's not just the size of the company, it's the health of the company and the workers at the company. How did you weigh Mary Barra's role in all of this, particularly in this moment? 
considering the list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she has a lot of power at her disposal. Part of this, of our ranking of the women, is what they can do with that power. And so certainly how they handle these strikes, we will be watching carefully. But another thing that we were considering is their push into EV. Mm-hmm. They really want to take um, all of, anything that's not an EV off the market by 2035. She's really led on that. She's really led on that. So we feel like that's a huge environmental impact as well. Um, there is a real lack of diversity, and you don't shy away from that. You write about it, you talk about it. Um, it in the report, 22% of C-suite leaders are white women. Only 6% are women of color. And you write, there are also more black CEOs running Fortune 500s than ever before. But it is shameful to say that there are still only eight. Shameful. Yeah, absolutely shameful. And you know, I got to tell you, when we were thinking about cover contenders, Roz Brewer, obviously so powerful. And then, you know, she's now not in the role anymore. Right. Remind people who she is. She ran Sam's Club. Then she was one of the leads at Starbucks exactly. and then went on to yeah, be she, CEO. She was one of the few CEO, black CEOs um, of a Fortune 500. Um, and now there's really only one. So um, that's how all yeah. there is. Um, one thing that's interesting is Kim Kardashian is on the list. People know her sort of business empire. But $4 billion is now what her shapewear empire is in in Skims. What's interesting is that you look at not just someone's influence in the boardroom, but outside the boardroom, too. This is I was talking to her at the Time 100 Summit about business a little bit, but a lot about her work on criminal justice reform. How do you consider things outside of the boardroom in this list? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be you'd be hard pressed to find someone who is a more influential marketer in the world, maybe Elon Musk, you could say. But Kim has incredible reach, impact. Yes, what she's doing with criminal justice reform is one area. Um, But she really, I mean, now she has a private equity firm and people from Carlisle and Apple are following her. They're really respected executives across many fields. I mean, how many times does this woman have to prove she's not just beautiful, but she's also smart? I don't think she has anything to prove anymore, if you ask me. She is remarkable, as are all the women on the list in their own right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Phil. Well, this morning, the Powerball jackpot increasing even more after another winless drawing. Here are the numbers from last night's $1.2 billion drawing. While no one hit the grand prize, it's still worth checking your tickets. A few tickets match the first five numbers worth at least a million dollars. The next drawing is Saturday with an estimated jackpot of $1.4 billion. We could do something with that money. This is the first time in the game's history two consecutive jackpot winners will be worth more than a billion dollars. And it's been two whole days since we talked about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, and Poppy has been losing her mind. She has to talk about this chief star, Travis Kelsey, telling his brother during their podcast that the NFL has taken the whole Taylor Swift thing too far. Is the NFL overdoing it? What is your honest opinion? Not I think, take away, I think everybody take away is just like overwhelmed your feelings with- for Taylor. What is your honest opinion <laughs> on how the NFL is treating uh, celebrities at games? I think it's fun when they show uh, who all is at the game. You know, I think uh, I think it brings a little bit more to the atmosphere, brings a little bit more to, to what you're watching. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, they're overdoing it. They're, they're overdoing it. That's worth noting. They showed. Taylor Swift, 17 times during the broadcast of an NFL football game. The NFL is defending their coverage, saying, quote, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey news has been a pop culture, cultural moment. We've leaned into it in real time. It's an intersection of sports and entertainment. Is this really a controversy? (laughs) 
You know what's not a controversy? Today's Travis Kelsey's birthday. How do you Poppy, know that? what have you done? How do you know that? For this moment in popular culture. How do you know culture? that? Did you do we know where Taylor Swift is? No, I don't. No, I have no idea. But I'm sure we'll have more on this story for you tomorrow, folks. <laughs> The Biden administration is getting ready to build a border. Now to news, the Biden administration is getting ready to build a border wall. They are waiving 26 federal laws in South Texas to do this. It's a significant break from their posture before the details of the plan ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It is the top of the hour this Thursday morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's start with five things to know for this October 5th. The Biden administration preparing to build a border wall, waiving 26 federal laws in South Texas to do so. And the Homeland Security Secretary says there is an acute and immediate need. And the race for speaker now fully underway. Top Republicans Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are officially running. Whoever the House GOP picks could have major policy implications from Ukraine to the looming shutdown. Also, the wife of Senator Bob Menendez struck and killed a pedestrian while she was driving a car five years ago. That crash was allegedly the inception of a bribe outline in the federal indictment against the couple. And Commander Biden, dog, was involved in more biting incidents at the White House than were originally reported. Sources telling CNN the number is much higher. Team USA's women's gymnastics team winning its record seventh straight gold medal at the World Championships. They were led by superstar Simone Biles, who now has twice as many golds at Worlds, 20, than any other woman gymnast in the world. She's good. G-O-A-T. CNN This Morning starts now. The failure of, 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 of federal uh, policies is now impacting the people of Chicago in a very dramatic way. We still have public safety that we have to address. We still have the unhoused that we have to address. I still have a budget that I have to address. And I'm doing all of that with a black wife raising three black children on the west side of the city of Chicago. I am going to the border as soon as possible. That was Chicago's mayor sounding the alarm about the migrant crisis overwhelming that city. He says the governor of Texas is now sending some 22 busloads of migrants every day up from the southern border as southern border struggles with a continuing huge surge. And this is a result. Thousands of migrants, including families with small children, have been living and sleeping on the street in Chicago. Chicago is not alone in this. The number of buses of migrants arriving in New York City has tripled, up to 600 migrants arriving here every day, according to city officials. New York City's mayor is on the ground in Mexico. He says to see the problem firsthand, new video shows migrants defying security, rushing the border near El Paso. And now, for the first time, the Biden administration is giving the green light to build a new border wall to deal with the crisis. Department of Homeland Security's secretary says there's a, quote, an acute and immediate need. Priscilla Alvarez is live for us at the White House. Uh, Priscilla, this move by the Biden administration, it runs counter to what they said they wanted to do during the campaign. Why are they doing it here? Well, they're saying they're doing it here because they have 2019 funds that were appropriated for this exact purpose, which was building additional border barriers, and that they're going to focus those funds on an area that has received a lot of traffic of migrants. Now, according to the numbers and federal data, this area, the Rio Grande Valley sector, which covers South Texas, has seen nearly 300,000 encounters between last October and this August. So clearly an area of concern 
for administration officials as they look to set up this border barrier. Now, in uh, last month, the Customs and Border Protection had announced and sought public input from the community as they were looking at doing this. And this would be up to 20 miles of border barrier and would include a number of fixtures, for example, um, lights, cameras and gates, as well as access roads. But to do it and to do it in an expedited manner, they're waiving certain laws. That includes the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, as well as the Endangered Species Act. Now, they are sure to come under criticism by Democrats for making this move. In fact, uh, Texas Rep Representative Henry Cuellar said that they shouldn't be taking a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. And the officials, when you talk to them, say when they, when they see border security and they talk about border barriers, they would want to focus instead on border technology. The funds have been appropriated for these physical barriers. But look, the White House is acutely aware that this is an area of concern for them. There has been an uptick in border crossings. They are facing criticism from cities across the country, including from Democratic allies. And so this is an area they're going to focus on for this wall. We should also note that Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and Attorney General Garland are all in Mexico this week for annual security talks. And you know that migration is going to come up in those talks. Yeah, it's a certainty. Priscilla Alvarez, great reporting as always. Thank you. So this morning, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, also in Mexico for what he calls a fact-finding mission in an effort to address the migrant crisis at the source. This, as New York officials say, the number of migrants arriving in the city has surged to 600 a day. This comes after Texas Governor Greg Abbott ramped up his controversial migrant busing program, sending more and more migrants to cities like Chicago and New York. Our Polo Sandoval live again this morning outside of the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City. This has a, been a huge area of focus where a lot of migrants have been. I, I would ask, is this the breaking point for the city? But the mayor of New York said weeks ago that it already was then. We've heard it before, right, Poppy? And here's a figure that's quite telling. Just think about it. Uh, New York City has been grappling with this migrant crisis for about a year and a half now. Yet it was just last week, according to what I heard from the city yesterday, that the city saw one of its highest number of asylum seekers arrive here in the Big Apple. Some 3,700 who arrived here just last week alone. All of them now added to the nearly 63,000 asylum seekers that are still in the city's care. As you mentioned, just a little while ago, many of them having to make their first stop here at the Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan, where uh, they basically assess their situation before they're placed in the shelter system. The daily arrivals has grown significantly from about 400 to 600, according to the last update. And the buses chartered by Texas Governor Greg Abbott seem to be a larger factor here with the number of those buses arriving here to the busy and loud streets of New York City basically tripling over the last several weeks. Uh, the city did begin to see a little bit of relief. Uh, that is when they began to enforce this controversial 60-day notice to some of the adult asylum seekers who've been in the system for quite some time. But Poppy, when you have a large number of migrants coming into the city, then it's very difficult to see any fruits of their labor. And obviously this coming as Mayor Eric Adams wakes up in Mexico City this morning. The first stop in his multi-stop, uh, what he's describing as a fact-finding uh, trip to Mexico as part of it, uh, also plans to make a stop in South America, potentially approaching that treacherous Darien Gap, which, of course, we've heard so much about, which many migrants have experienced before. They eventually make up, uh, make their way to, to Chicago, as we heard, Washington, D.C., of course, here, the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City.
Poppy. Well, Sandoval, thank you for the reporting. Let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian and Jessica Washington, senior reporter at The Root. Guys, thanks uh, for being here. Jessica, uh, David pointed this out last hour, and I think it's a, a critical point to recognize here. This has always been such a uh, hot-button political issue. You have Democratic mayors, Democratic governors, state and local Democrats reaching out to the Biden administration saying, we, we need help here. Um, what do you think the administration will end up having to do here from a policy perspective? Yeah, it does seem like the administration is willing to take efforts to slow the flow of immigration to the country, the slow the flow of migrants into the country. So I do think from a policy perspective, they're going to have to do that. They also have to contend with the fact that there are elements of the party that really want a compassionate response to this crisis and might have a different response than, say, Mayor Eric Adams, who has said things that many people find insensitive about the you know migrants and asylum seekers who are coming to this country. So they're going to have to, if they you know don't want to alienate Democrats on either side of this issue, they're going to have to find a compassionate way to deal with this issue. David, is this good for the Biden administration politically or bad for them or kind of both? Because doesn't it undercut the critics, Republicans who would say they're doing nothing on the border, but at the same time, as Jessica just laid out, uh, is going to anger some Democrats? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complex for them. And, and so uh, there is some opportunity here for them politically to uh, start uh, looking a little tougher on the border. But they, as Jessica was saying, uh, this is going to have to be a both and proposition for them. This is not either or. This is not uh, we're just going to do border security and not focus on what we do with the migrants who are already here in this country and how uh, we are treating them. It has to be from the administration's perspective for their political purposes is uh, a comprehensive uh, kind of solution that we were saying last hour, of course, there is no comprehensive legislative solution. That's not available here to actually resolve this in this way. But as the Biden administration is trying to piece together the uh, acute moment that they are experiencing on the border, mm -hmm. uh, as well as this overrun of uh, what is a humanitarian crisis in these cities that are on their friendly or political wow. turf, they are going to have to thread this needle. Comprehensive immigration reform is available. Should there be the Sorry. will I, to pursue? I, I'm not correcting you, yes. David. I'm just like <laughs> reminding like lawmakers that like they could do it. That's all. What? No, I, you're both right. I, I think the reality is, is like, that's the only thing that people can point to as an actual solution here. And so instead, to David's point, it's, it's a bunch of one-offs trying to piece things together and dealing with the political yeah. coalitions as well. David, I, I want to shift over because I, I, we were talking to Fred Plekin earlier, who's on the ground in Ukraine. And I think that there is a very real, and I'm not sure everybody fully grasped the inflection point for the Western coalition that is currently underway. And it's not just because of what's happening on Capitol Hill. But Capitol Hill has a big part of that. Take a listen to what Jim Jordan, now a leading candidate to be the next speaker, had to say to our colleague Manu Raju. At some point, we're going to have to deal with this appropriation process in the right way. And we're going to try to do that in the next, what are we down to, 41 days. Um, the most pressing issue on Americans' minds is not Ukraine. It is the border situation, and it is crime on the streets. Now, the question that Manu had asked was about uh, additional funding for Ukraine, which Jordan seemed to kind of dismiss to some degree. David, is there a pathway right now on Capitol Hill, given how paralyzed the House is? Well, I, I wouldn't rule out that there is some pathway for additional funding, given that um, you do have 
bipartisan majorities in both the House and the Senate that are in favor of it. So that that's a that's a place to start where you see a path. But you just noted the problem. The Republicans are now in this uh, uh, chaotic moment of looking for a new speaker. And Ukraine aid is one of those litmus tests where the base is not at all interested. And by the way, we've seen in our polling overall, uh, over time, the American people broadly are getting less interested in uh, supporting this uh, war uh, financially. You heard President Biden yesterday, Phil, uh, preview that he's gonna be giving a big speech on this. You saw him gather uh, on the phone with the Western uh, leaders this week. This is a clear moment and the, the, leadership vacuum on the Republican side in the House definitely further complicates this moment, which is why I think you're going to see the president step up his appeal to the nation uh, to stay in this and try to lay out for the country uh, while it's diminishing in its thinking about supporting this, why they need to stay the course here. There are all these urgent issues converging at once with such limited time. So Ukraine funding keeping the government open, what are we, 41 days away from a shutdown? Those things. The, the crisis at the border that the Biden administration is now taking really interesting sort of sweeping action on. All these things happening at once. That's the big picture we're looking at here. Yeah. And no speaker. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's always an unprecedented time in this country in the last, I guess, 10 years. Phil and I decided we need a, I decided we need a program. I liked it. Uh, segment called Unprecedented. It's just unprecedented. I like it. Every single day, there's something that happens that's unprecedented. It always feels that way. And not just feels, it is that way, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing all these different issues come together. I think certainly, you know, when Jim Jordan is saying Americans maybe don't care about Ukraine, is he right that it's not the most pressing issue? Probably. It's not a majority anymore. Yeah, it's not a majority. And I agree, it's probably not the most pressing issue. You know, if it was between a government shutdown and supporting aid in Ukraine, I think most Americans would prefer not to shut down the government. It doesn't have to be that way. But we have a political system that has pitted all these different issues against each other. So it does feel like this really chaotic time where particularly, you know, us in the news, we're trying to figure out what we can focus on. You know, David, to that point, and for the final point, you have often pointed out the, the sense of, People feel this, right? And they've been feeling it since they came out of the pandemic. I know it's been an issue the Biden administration has tried to figure out how to address for their two plus years in office politically and polling. What is it and how do you address it? Um, can you explain, like, does that something that is definitely going to carry into 2024? How do you see this playing out? This feeling you're talking about in the country of uh, everything being off course? Just kind of um, blah. Yeah, I, there's no doubt. This is this, remember, the 2020 election was an election in the midst of the pandemic. This is going to be the first national presidential election post-pandemic. And as we know, post-pandemic is a, is a very different meaning for very different folks, but it has created uh, this sense of uh, concern and angst and not settled into a new normal fully yet uh, for the American people. And that no doubt is going to have reverberations from now through next November. It's something we definitely have to keep watching. No question about it. Jessica, David, thank you guys very much. Sure. Well, happening today, a memorial service will take place on the late Senator Dianne Feinstein at San Francisco City Hall with a private burial to follow. Now, the service is no longer open to the public after the city reversed course. Officials say it was due to, quote, increased security, but no specifics were given. The 90-year-old Feinstein was the oldest member of the U.S. Senate and a fixture in California politics for decades. She passed away last Thursday after multiple health issues. Speakers at her memorial will include Vice President Kamala Harris, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Feinstein's longtime friend and colleague, 
Nancy Pelosi. The service will also include tape remarks from President Biden. New revelations this morning about the wife of Senator Bob Menendez, who is facing federal bribery charges. Prosecutors now zeroing in on a 2018 incident where she killed a pedestrian with her car. The newly released surveillance video ahead. And new this morning, for the first time, FIFA announcing plans to have the 2030 Men's World Cup span six countries over three continents. Morocco, Portugal, and Spain will play host, with games also taking place in Uruguay, Argentina, and Paraguay. This decision follows a trend set when FIFA awarded the 2026 Men's World Cup to a joint bid from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. A final decision on the 2030 bid will be made by FIFA Congress next year. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, new video obtained by CNN is raising questions about a 2018 fatal car accident involving New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez's wife. We want to warn you, this video may be disturbing. It shows Nadine Menendez, Menendez's wife, hitting and killing a pedestrian, backing up and then driving down the road. Now, she did stop and talk to police near the scene. New York Times reports she was never tested for drugs or alcohol and allowed to leave. Is there anything wrong? No, no. I, you know? Look, I, I understand. I understand. If we can clear you from any wrongdoing, I want to get you home and comfortable and not here anymore. You get what I'm saying? Nothing against you. Before you go, I just want to confirm that you do not want to give me your phone, correct? Yeah. Okay, and that's your statement that you were driving this way, the guy came from this way, and he ran into your vehicle. He jumped on my windshield. The incident has come into focus into the spotlight after being referenced in the recent indictment of Senator Menendez, his wife, and three others. The indictment alleges that two of the co-defendants offered to buy Nadine Menendez a new Mercedes after the crash in exchange for the senator interfering in the prosecution of one of the co-defendants' business associates. Prosecutors say that after Nadine Menendez got the new car, she texted the senator, quote, congratulations, mon amour, de la vie. We are the proud owners of a 2019 Mercedes, along with a heart emoji. Joining us now, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. Um, I, I want to start with what actually happened and then kind of build out into the indictment itself. There was, a, uh, I think, an off-duty or retired police officer that showed up on the scene here, said he was a friend of Senator Menendez. Uh, I'm not naive to people using friends to help out with things. But in this particular case, is that problematic? Is that rare? You know, he shows up and says, my wife knows the driver of this car, and she asked me to take her friend up so that she would have someone there. Um, there's nothing on the tape that indicates he asked for anything else, like uh, any special consideration. Can you give her a break? What he does ask is, um, and this is a very well-tailored cop-to-cop question. He asked if the prosecutor's office is going to be involved. In New Jersey and in that county, the prosecutor's office handles fatal accidents. So what he's basically saying is, is, did that guy make it? Is that guy dead? Is the prosecutor's office going to be involved? Is it a possibility something could happen tonight? And the officer answers. He says, no, I mean, he says the prosecutor's office is going to be involved, but I mean, I think she's going to be free to go. She didn't want to give her phone number, I guess, which is her right. They would have had the plates from her car to identify. Well, she, Go ahead. She, they wanted her to give her phone over. Now, the reason they want to do that is they want to look at the activity on the phone to see at the time and the moment of the accident. What was she doing? Was she texting back and forth while she was driving? Was she on some call? Was she in an email? 
um, and that's a standard procedure. She gives them the phone and then thinks about it and takes it back. So there's a supplemental report. In the police report, it says the prosecutor's office will subpoena her telephone records to learn what was, if anything, going on on that phone. The supplemental report with the answers to that question was not included in the records that were turned over yesterday. So we don't know if they did subpoena it. No, and we'll be, well, we assume they subpoenaed it. Don't we don't know what the records say. Uh, and that's something, Poppy, we're going to be following up on today because our calls to the prosecutor's office in Bergen County were unanswered yesterday. Um, the appearance of this, uh, or at least the through line from this to the new car that was purchased for Nadine Menendez and uh, what appeared to be an exchange or what's alleged to be an exchange for the senator uh, trying to help out one of these individuals. Um, how do these all connect together or do they? So they don't, but they do. Um, in the unintended consequences, the car, the new car she gets to replace her car, which has the bashed in windshield from striking and killing this gentleman, uh, that is paid for by an individual who's seeking favors from the senator for, for the Egyptian government. That's why the accident is mentioned in the indictment and reporters for the Bergen record and later the New York Times dug into this to figure out, well, what was the accident about? Not knowing it was a fatal accident where she was the driver and, and hit a person. So the indictment has actually put the spotlight on the accident rather than the other way around. You guys have a lot of questions for the prosecutor's office. And, uh, well, we have, we have a few, and those yeah. are, number one, was there phone activity in, or at the time uh -huh. of the accident or wasn't? When she stops after hitting him, she sits there in the car for a full minute, stock still, and the questions are, is she the person who called 911? Mm -hmm. Did she not call 911? Is it possible she called someone else um, and said, what do I do? And then the car moves up about 100 feet, and then she stays there until police arrives. What's really unusual to me yeah. is she doesn't get out of the car, to run over to the victim okay. and say, like, are you okay? Can so, you talk? You know, John, to that point, his name is Richard Coop. Has his fam uh, family spoken out about do they feel like they've gotten justice in terms of an investigation of his death? The family um, understands that, you know, he was out um, at a couple of bars. He was coming home and he was jaywalking. They get that part. What they said to us was we reiterate what we told The New York Times, which is we just felt there was no impetus to really investigate right. this, and they wonder why. I think everyone wonders why. John, thank you for the reporting. Bring us more as you get it. Well. So the president's dog, Commander Biden, could be in more trouble. A source tells CNN he was involved in more biting incidents at the White House and was originally reported. And funding for the war in Ukraine is front and center in the speakership battle on Capitol Hill. We're going to break down just how critical that aid is for the war efforts ahead. Stay with us. At this moment, the future of Ukraine aid, or at least additional aid, seems in limbo after Kevin McCarthy was ousted as House Speaker. Yeah, and it comes at a critical point in the nation's war as Pentagon officials warn Russia is preparing for a winter offensive. At this point, it's not clear who the next Speaker of the House will be, but it is likely they will have a significant impact on what additional support, if there even is any, looks like. A top contender for the Speaker role, Jim Jordan, and here's what he said yesterday. Are you willing to move forward with an aid package for Ukraine if you're a speaker? I'm, I'm, I'm against that. Uh, what I understand is at some point we're going to have to deal with this appropriation process in the right way. And we're going to try to do that in the next, what are we down to, 41 days. Um, 
the most pressing issue on Americans' mind is not Ukraine. It is the border situation and it is crime on the streets. So it's important to take a step back for a second, given the fact this debate has been ongoing and seems to be heading in a different direction. Analysts estimate Ukraine's current burn rate of equipment, munitions and maintenance in the war is about $2.5 billion a month. Much of that funding comes from Washington, from the U.S. The senior administration officials believe that money could run out in just weeks. Now, according to the Defense Department, the Pentagon has about $5.4 billion worth of weapons that the president could remove and distribute to other nations. Of the roughly $26 billion that Congress previously authorized to replenish that U.S. stock, only $1.6 billion remains. And an aid package known as the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative has already run dry. Last week, the Pentagon's chief financial officer sent a letter to Congress warning them, quote, without additional funding now, we would have to delay or curtail assistance to meet Ukraine's requirements. That is something that Max Bergman, the director of Europe and Russia at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, says leaves Ukraine in dangerous limbo. He writes, quote, if the U.S. Congress does not pass a funding bill, Ukraine will be in deep trouble. A lot of Ukrainians will die and their ability to fight on will be severely compromised. We know the Biden administration has asked for $24 billion in a supplemental request for Ukraine. But that is obviously now on hold because the House cannot pass anything without a speaker. And to complicate things further, several possible candidates for the next Speaker of the House already skeptical about continuing support for Ukraine at the current levels. The day before he was removed from his speakership, McCarthy warned about this. Maybe a lot of questions, especially on the accountability provisions of what we want to see with the money that they have. But it's worth noting, the shift isn't just on Capitol Hill, just isn't among House Republicans. A CNN poll released in August suggests public support for additional aid has started to shift. 55% of Americans now say Congress should not authorize additional funding to support Ukraine in its fight versus the 45% who do. And big picture, 51% of Americans say that the U.S. has already done enough to help Ukraine. That number was only 38% in February of last year. Despite all of this, Ukrainian officials say they're still optimistic. We don't feel that the U.S. support has been shattered. Uh, and uh, we, because uh, the United States understands that what is at stake in Ukraine is much bigger than just Ukraine. President Biden also sounding optimistic. It does worry me, and but I know there are a majority of members of the House and Senate in both parties who have said that they support funding Ukraine. The president announced he will soon be making his case directly to the American people in what he describes as a major speech on this. I'm going to make the argument that it's overwhelmingly in the interest of the United States of America that Ukraine succeed. He also suggested the administration right now, because of the up-in-the-air situation in Congress, the administration is looking to find potential workarounds for funding. There is another means by which we may be able to... Uh, find funding. What are those means? Neither the president nor his aides have elaborated on what those possible alternatives might be. We will keep you posted on all of this, Phil. We also want to bring in CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward. Uh, Clarissa, I think the big question right now, look, the U.S. is the cornerstone of a Western coalition, both monetarily but also in leadership, uh, which I think has been more solid than most people suspected for a lot longer than they suspected. And yet, 
if the U.S. moves away from this, what happens? Things start to unravel at an alarming speed, honestly, Phil. And that's why I think even though you're seeing Ukrainian officials putting a brave face on things and saying, you know, we believe that this union will continue uh, privately, their blood is running cold. Uh, they've got the fight of their lives that they're engaged in at the moment. They have lost some momentum on the battlefield. It has been a very tough, grinding, grueling fight uh, throughout this counteroffensive, and they desperately need both the morale of having the support of America, but more importantly, they need munitions. Uh, the Europeans have stepped up their support, of course, um, but they cannot match or meet the requirements that are currently in place. And so there's very real questions as to what will actually happen on the front lines if this funding dries up. And even though I think that cooler heads are, are, are predicting that somehow this will get resolved and hopefully the things will return to a sort of status quo, anti, there is the broader concern going into the election year of how long until this happens again. Mm -hmm. And the very real knowledge that all of this is playing into President Vladimir Putin's playbook. He understood from the get-go that the best chance that Russia had uh, of being victorious in this battle was by creating a protracted, grueling war of attrition that would grind on for many years and really test the patience uh, of Western backers. Clarissa, this is something we were speaking with Fred Plankton on the ground there about as well, and that is the concern that must be uh, among Ukrainian officials that if the U.S. does not fulfill more aid to Ukraine in the next month plus, would there be a ripple effect, a domino effect with other countries and their monetary support of Ukraine? I mean, we are already seeing the beginning of, I, I won't call them cracks, but let's say at least question marks. Uh, you have voters in Slovakia right. who just voted for a former prime minister who ran on a platform of ending Russian sanctions and not allowing a single solitary shell to be sent to Ukraine. He still has to form a government. That's a big challenge. He may not be able to do it. But the point is still there, that you are seeing emerging the, these question marks as to how long do we continue to write this blank check for. We just heard from the Italian Prime Minister, Georgia Maloney. Italy has been very generous uh, to the Ukrainian effort. She said they will continue to be steadfast with Ukraine. But, she said, and this is an important caveat, we have to be mindful of public opinion. We have to be mindful of the ripple effects of this war that are being felt across Europe in the form of inflation, in the form of surging energy prices, in the form of migration. And so there is a concern, I think, for the Europeans that while they are still steadfast, uh, that it could become more difficult, more challenging, and that they simply don't have the capacity or the wherewithal, Poppy, mm -hmm. to do this on their own, despite the amount that they are giving and the uptick uh, in the amount that they continue to give. The reality is when you're talking about something like munitions, for example, um, one industry expert, I think, estimated that 5 to 10 percent, maybe, of Ukraine's needs on munitions could be met by the Europeans. That wow. obviously falls drastically short of where it would need to be. So I think in very kind of clear-eyed, pragmatic terms, it is difficult to see how on earth the Europeans could do this, both on a practical level and also just in terms of morale and leadership, without the strong support of the U.S. who have been the leaders on this from the get-go. Yeah. Clarissa, a huge question mark that you bring up all the time. Can Russia just outlast 
Ukraine on all of this. Thank you for the reporting live from London. Appreciate it. Well, you can stop me if you've heard this before. Simone Biles, she broke a record, another gymnastics record. We're going to show you how she helped Team USA win its seventh straight world championship. Also, Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers on strike today for a second day. Just how far are both sides from an agreement? That's next. We don't feel value. We don't feel that Kaiser executives are listening to the frontline workers. This morning, it is day two of the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. More than 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers back on the picket lines this morning as the company and the union are locked in a standoff over staffing shortages and wage increases. Kaiser Permanente say tentative agreements were reached Wednesday on unspecified issues after a marathon round of contract talks. Natasha Chen joins us live from Los Angeles with more. A big impact on folks if this doesn't get resolved soon. Yeah, Poppy, luckily this is a scheduled three-day strike, so they will be back to work on Saturday. But the fact that there's still no agreement means that they could plan a longer strike in November. Uh, Late last night, we got a statement from the unions at the negotiating table. They said that they're still waiting for a meaningful response from the Kaiser healthcare system when it comes to safe staffing, outsourcing protections for incumbent healthcare workers, and fair wages uh, to reduce turnover. They say that frontline healthcare workers within the coalition remain ready to meet at any time. Currently, they say the strike continues and there are no sessions scheduled at this hour. So it does not seem that they're meeting right now. At the same time, the hospital system has told us that Kaiser Permanente, our industry, they say, and our are now operating in a new cultural labor and post-pandemic environment that we are all working hard to understand. We are committed to finding workable solutions for this new environment that meet our responsibility to balance taking care of our employees and being able, uh, affordable to our members. Now, when I talked to people on the picket line yesterday about this issue, uh, the understaffing was really at the core of all of this. Here's right. what they said. As we're speaking, there are nurses uh, that are sleeping in the cars because of two reasons. One, they can't afford, uh, you know, cost of living here, so they have to move two, three hours. And then because of short staff, they're working 14, 16 hours, so they're tired. Frontline workers, we're taking the risk, taking it to home, to our families, but we don't feel valued. I also talked to a patient uh, on Tuesday, right before the strike began, and while this strike would ha- be affecting his ability to get care very quickly. These are technicians, receptionists, nurses that are on strike. He did say that he understood why they're walking out because he himself felt the very long waits to just see a provider or see someone in the emergency room. So he understood why they were on strike, Poppy. And remembering that these are a lot of the frontline workers, Natasha, during COVID that were there, you know, saving lives. What I find so interesting about this strike is, yes, it's about a demand for increased wages, but a lot of it is actually about the patient, they say. It's about feeling like short staffing means that the patients are not getting what they need. Absolutely. They talked about the chaotic nature of the clinics and the hospitals when the patients have to wait too long. Mm -hmm. Uh, One radiology technician actually told me that uh, there are patients waiting too long for help from a nurse to get out of bed. So they do it themselves. They fall and they have to see him to get an X-ray. So it all has a trickle down effect. It certainly does. Thank you for the reporting. Natasha Chen for us in Los Angeles.
Well, also this morning, CNN is learning that Commander Biden is no longer at the White House. We're, of course, talking about President Biden's two-year-old German Shepherd commander, no longer on the campus after it appears he was involved in more biting incidents than the 11 that have been reported so far. CNN's Betsy Klein has the story today. Uh, Betsy, what are you learning about what exactly has happened here? Well, Phil, we knew this summer that there had been 11 documented incidents of Commander Biden biting Secret Service agents. That number ticked up to 11 last week. But as the course of my reporting, as talking to sources here at the White House, learned that that number is actually much larger. It's in the dozens, and it impacts not just Secret Service, but also executive residence personnel, other people that work here at the White House. And I think the incidents really range in severity. So one person was treated for an injury at the hospital. Another person, other people have been treated at the White House medical unit, and some haven't been documented or treated at all. Does the Biden family think that this is as big a problem as the Secret Service, or is there a divide here? Yeah, so, I mean, sources I spoke with uh, say that they're worried and concerned about their safety. We have to remember that the White House is a uh, home, but it's also a workplace for hundreds of people. And Secret Service had to change some of their procedures, going in different entries and exits to avoid getting in the way of the dog. And I think the president and the first lady have begun to realize that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. So yesterday, as we were asking the White House these exact questions about workplace safety, we heard that Commander Biden is no longer at the White House right now. The communications director for the First Lady Elizabeth Alexander telling CNN, Commander is not presently on the White House campus while next steps are evaluated. Do we have any idea what those next steps may be? I know there had been training underway. There wasn't really any sense of, of how uh, long or in-depth that training was. What happens now to Commander? It's a great question, and I think we're going to have to see if there are able to be changes made. And we have to remember that this is the president's dog. He is a member of the Biden family. He travels with them to Delaware to Camp David on the weekends. And uh, it's going to be really big questions about what happens going forward. And I think the situation more broadly belies some tension between the Biden family and Secret Service. Um, this was a problem back in 2021 when they had issues with their dog, Major. And now, in uh, two years later, they are uh, some once told me that the relationship there is combustible. Of course, the Secret Service denies that, calling it categorically false. All right, Betsy Klein, it's great reporting. It's a fascinating story. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, the search for the Powerball winner continues after no one hit last night's jackpot. Sorry, Poppy. Harry Anton is here. He's going to show us just how much of the money you would actually see if you'd had the winning ticket. And finally, last night's Powerball jackpot reached an estimated $1.2 billion, or as Trump's accountant calls it, $35 billion. Just math. <laughs> the search for a Powerball winner <laughs> continues after no one hit last night's $1.2 billion jackpot. Well, there's no grand prize winner. A few tickets did match up, but the first five numbers worth at least a million dollars. Take a million dollars. The next drawing is Saturday with an estimated $1.4 billion payout. This is the first time in the game's history that two consecutive jackpots will be worth more than $1 billion. There are numbers. It's complicated. So that's why we bring in CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten to give us your Powerball numbers that will win, but we get to take the money. But also, well, what here, are you looking here, at here? Here's a billion dollars. That's, a, that's not a wallet. That's a brick. Can like, I that's see a, here, here you go. This is, <laughs> is that the most absurd thing I've ever seen? <laughs> Andrew, our producer, just said you could fit the entire $1.2 billion in his wallet. There's a magnet in here. Anyways, continue. Sorry, we're, no, I figured you wanted money. I give you money. Okay. <laughs> so 
Here's the deal that I think is so interesting, right? We report the 20-year annuity prize, the big prize. You know, right now we're at $1.4 billion. But of course, the vast majority of people actually take the lump sum payment. The lump sum payment for this is $644 million. And what's so interesting to me about this is it turns out that the annuity, despite being $1.4 billion, that's much more than, let's say, back in January of 2021, when there was a billion-dollar prize and it was $1.1 billion, Look, the lump sum is actually smaller now than it was back in 2021. And this is something that we've been seeing across the board, whereby the 20-year annuities seem really high, but the lump sums are actually significantly smaller than they used to be. Why is it the annuities are so high, but the lump sums that pretty much everyone takes are much lower than you might expect, certainly lower than the past few years? It turns out that lottery annuities get high fast when interest rates are high because what the lottery does is they take the lump sums and they invest them in bonds, government bonds that are in fact tied in fact to interest rates. And what we see here is the interest rates now are much higher at 5.3. Compare that back to January of 2021 when the interest rate was just 0.1%. So you're getting less bang for your buck if you take the lump sum instead of the annuities. Love now. how all of this math applies to what one person who's going to win all of it. Does this going to mean more billion-dollar jackpots? It does mean more billion-dollar jackpots. So the billion-dollar annuities this year, there have already been four. The pre-2023 yeah. total was five. So we're getting a lot more of these, quote-unquote, huge jackpots that the truth is people will win, but they'll actually just take the lump sum, so they're not getting anywhere near the billion dollars. They're just winning hundreds of millions of dollars. Still a pretty good thing. And I'll note, though, still people are really buying these tickets because how much lottery sales jump with a billion-dollar jackpot? They've jumped about 50% on average this year versus 63% previously. So the lottery's getting what they want. They're still getting a lot of people to buy tickets, even if those lump sums aren't as good as we might hope they are. I feel like we need to keep the wallet just for what it's worth. I but do, not, also, want, I do like, not like the idea that only someone with a wallet <laughs> that enormous would be kind of bummed out about $600 million. It must be nice to be Harry and to I, Here, I think I have it right in here. Here it is for you. That's a $1 bill. Oh, sorry, my bad. Harry, thank you, thank Harry. You. Thank you. We appreciate it. it. Well, Simone Biles becoming the most decorated American gymnast ever. We're going to show you how she led Team USA to its seventh straight world championship. Well, Simone Biles is breaking more records because it's just what she does as part of her triumphant return to gymnastics continues. Ten years to the day, and in the same place, Biles won her first gold medal on the world stage. She won her 20th at the world championship. 26-year-old help, 26-year-old gymnast helped Team USA clinch its seventh consecutive world title, the most consecutive wins by any country. Earlier this morning, we spoke to three-time Olympic gold medalist in gymnastics Dominique Dawes about Biles' historic win. What she's doing, I am in complete awe of. My kids are huge fans of Simone Biles. And what I love is that she's enjoying this journey. She's smiling along the way. She's an amazing teammate. And uh, she's going to leave a lasting impact. Of course, that. And she has a chance to make even more history over the weekend. Biles is now tied for the most combined medals at 33 between the Olympics and the World Championship. So a top three finish in any of her next events means she would stand alone again in the record books because she is the GOAT. I feel like that's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. Safe bet. Thank you for joining us. CNN News Central picks it up now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.